Good morning. Go ahead and turn your Bibles to Romans chapter 5. We're going to be continuing our trek through the book of Romans. And we're just going to look at the first five verses. And uh, these are really powerful verses in Scripture. I mean, I know they're all powerful, but these are like, especially, this is, I think Romans is the crown jewel of the New Testament. And I think these chapters are about to hit five through eight. This large section uh, is the crown jewel of the crown jewel. But uh, we're just going to just enter in in the first couple verses and uh, learn about a topic I think we all think about, the topic of hope. Hope, a Christian's hope. One of the amazing things about the book of Romans is, you know, you think about the past few weeks, we've been looking at the life of Abraham through the lens of the Apostle Paul. In chapter 4, Paul basically recounts the story of Abraham. And you've got to think about this guy's life. All the way back in Genesis 12, Abraham, he's been a pagan for most of his life, worshiping false gods. And then one day God plucks him out of the land of Ur and says, I've got a land for you, and you're going to have a people that comes from you. And he even renames him. He says, your name is now Abraham, which means the father of many nations. But you can imagine, you know, Abraham receives his promise at age 75. And Isaac isn't born until he's 100 years old. That's 25 years of waiting on hope. 25 agonizing years of wondering and struggling with the promises of God and the realities that he sees in front of him. So this dude is, you know, he's caravanning around the, the desert and he's meeting people. And imagine him introducing himself. Hi, I'm Abraham. I'm like, oh, hello, Mr. Father of Nations. Where are your kids? And you can feel him go, well, I don't have any. I can't have any. Really? Well, then how is this nation going to come from you? And he has to sit there and say, well, God promised that it would happen. And that's all I got. 25 years of that. But that's what Christian hope is. Christian hope is clinging on to the invisible promises of God despite the visible things that we see. That's faith. That's what it is. And Abraham, Paul says, hoped against all hope that God could bring life from the dead. That God could take Sarah's dead womb and from it miraculously, supernaturally bring life. And Paul says, when you believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, you share the same faith that Abraham had, that God brings life out of death. And this hope will never put us to shame. And that's, that's one of the big messages in Romans chapter 5. Hope does not put us to shame. You might hear the word hope, and it might actually stir up feelings of anxiety, or even shame. Because hope is such a powerful thing that hope that disappoints is devastating. It makes you even wonder whether you want to hope in anything at all. 
dashed hopes, dashed dreams, a goal that now is completely unattainable. Listen to Proverbs 13, 12. It says, hope deferred makes the heart sick. Have you ever felt your heart be sick at the loss of hope? There's an embarrassment. How could I ever have trusted this person or this thing? This is why we need Romans 5. To remind us that Christian hope is never put to shame. And it is such a durable hope. It's such a a foundational hope. It's such a powerful hope that you can even find joy in the midst of your sufferings. It's so sure, so tangible, so real that even in the midst of all the trials that life throws at you, you can find joy. So with that in mind, I want to read Romans chapter 5, verses 1 through 5. This is the word of God. Therefore, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance. And endurance produces character. And character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Let's pray together as we dive into God's word. Father, help us to reestablish our trust and the hope that you promise us in Christ. I pray for everyone in this room, Lord, in the various trials that they're facing, that we all face. Have a word for us. Apply this text to our lives. Help us to see where we fit in into your grand purposes. And help us to know that you are the one who helps us. You are our comforter. And that you're working in us, even if we have ceased to feel anything at all. You are with us. Don't let us leave here merely with more information. But as we hear your voice through your word, change us and transform us. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. I just want to look at three truths in this passage that help us to rejoice in hope in the midst of suffering. How do you rejoice in hope in the midst of suffering? And there's three pillars, three truths. The first is remembering that we have God's peace. The second is remembering that we have God's power. And finally, that we have God's presence. These are three promises, three truths of the Christian life that we can draw upon, resources and You know, whatever you're facing in your life, these things are constant, steadfast, always there for you. Resources for you. So I want to look at this first idea of God's peace. Paul says that since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God. Now this 
whole section starts with the word therefore. And a classic Bible study tip. You see the word therefore, you want to ask, what is the therefore? Therefore. Right? What is the therefore, therefore? Therefore is a linking word. It links what you're currently about to read to what you just read. Right? So we're currently about to read about us being justified by faith. And that's linked to what we just read about Abraham being justified by faith. So Paul says that what, what did Abraham do? Abraham believed the promise of God against everything that he saw, and God counted to him as righteousness. In other words, Abraham believed God's promise, and God looked at him as if he were pure, blameless, and righteous. And when we believe the promise of the gospel, when we believe in Jesus Christ and his death and resurrection, what does God do? He looks at us as righteous, as morally upright, as sinless and blameless because of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So we're linked by that same faith. Just as Abraham was justified, we too are justified, forgiven, made new, counted righteous by faith. Because Jesus died in our place for our sins. And if this is true, then we have peace with God. Now, peace, I mean, you think about maybe, you know, peace between nations, right? What is that? That's a removal of hostilities. So, peace with God is, on the one hand, it's, yeah, we, we're no longer condemned by God. The law no longer condemns us for our sins. So, we have peace. There's no more hostility between us and God. But it goes beyond that. It's not just the removal of hostility between us and God because of our sin, but it's the reconciliation of a relationship. You can have peace with somebody, and you're not going to invite them over for dinner. You can have peace with somebody, and you're not going to treat them like family. But God goes beyond just removing wrath, but he adopts us, welcomes us in, into his family, makes us heirs of everything that he promises. God's peace is about access. That's why he says we have access. We can obtain this grace in which we stand. Access by faith into this grace in which we stand. I love that image. We stand in grace. It's a foundation. It's not pixie dust. Oh, here's some grace for you. Right? It, it, this, this, is ro this is robust. This is something powerful, right? God's power. I mean, grace is God's God's powerful personal presence with us. And we can stand in it. That's what it means to be a Christian. It can bear the weight of our sins. It can bear the weight of our weaknesses, the weight of our struggles. That's the life that we live. So God not only showed us grace at our conversion, but he continues to do so. We're, we're transported into a new environment a new relationship, a reconciled relationship with God. It's not just a one-off event that happened, you know, at a, at a youth retreat a long time ago. But God's grace was with you this morning. It's with you right now. It will be with you for the rest of your life. Everything we do is by the grace of God. It's a new environment. It's the air that we breathe. If you think about our old environment that we lived in, Ephesians chapter 2 talks about how before Christ, we were you know, walking according to the passions of our flesh, to the desires of the world. We're 
corrupted by our sinful desires. Sin is our master. But God has made us alive in Christ. What does that mean? It means that now we're freed from the mastery of sin. Not the total presence of sin, but sin is no longer our master. We have a new master in Christ. He's freed us from that old way of life. And we live in a new environment. We live under grace, under the lordship of Jesus Christ. And that gives us new passions and new desires to please God. You ever see like a, you know, a fish out of water? It's like flopping around. And you're just like, oh man, poor thing. And then you take it and you throw it back in the water. And what happens? It starts moving. It comes back to life. That's what grace does to us. Right? Apart from grace, we're flopping. We're dead. We're on the, you know, on, on the beach just flopping around. And when God saves us, he puts us back into the water, back into the environment in which we flourish and we live. And we become what we were meant to be. Grace restores us. It restores our humanity. It, it, it makes us back into the worshipers of God that we were made to be. If you think about Romans 1, that's, that's the, the, the picture of what it's like when you're separated from God, corrupting yourself, falling into all kinds of sin, leading on a path to death. And then God, in His grace, He turns us around. He brings us back to Himself, the source of our life. God created us Think about Genesis. He tells Adam and Eve. He walks with them, and they worship them. And he says, I want you to rule creation, and I want you to fill it with image bearers of God. There's a royal calling to being human beings. There's this amazing high calling that he gives to us. And when we sin, we run away from that calling. It's beneath us. He created us to be sons and daughters and rulers over creation to reflect his character to the world. And this is what Paul talks about when he speaks of the hope of the glory of God. He's linking this later on to Romans chapter 8, where he says that all of creation is, is in bondage to corruption and, and decay. The whole created order is plagued by this thing called sin. And it won't be released until... He says the sons of God are revealed. Christians on the last day, until we're resurrected and we shine the full glory of God. The resurrection of our bodies. So there's a final goal, a final end point for who we are as human beings. God has made us to be creatures of glory. And right now we're in process. We're not exactly totally glorious right now. But that is the end goal. That's his vision for humanity. And one day sin will be eradicated from us, eradicated from the world. That's the hope of glory. But what about all the days in between now and then? You ever hear someone tell you, like, hey, you know what? It'll get better one day. And you're like, great. But today is today. And there's a lot of days in between today and the day it gets better. What do I do with that? What do I do with that? Well, he tells us, look, you have access to God now. You can obtain this grace in which we stand. This word access, that's temple language. Think about the Old Testament. There's this temple. This is the place where God dwells. But only the high priest can go into the most holy place, which is the place of God's most intimate dwelling place. Only the, whole, only the high priest can go there. Right? But 
the book of Hebrews tells us, no, when you're a Christian, you get to go right into the most holy place. You get to go right through the veil. You get to go right to the throne of grace. And God will give you help and mercy when you need it. You can go confidently before God right now and ask him, I need help, I need grace, and you promise to give it. You promise to help me every second of every day between now and the hope of glory. You will be there to help me. And God will one day restore us. But for now, God gives us access to him. And that's what we do every single Sunday. Right? This, is, this, is a, this is something that doesn't happen anywhere else in the world, where believers gather together outside of the church, outside of all the local churches in the world. What are these? These are, these are places where God's people gather together and they come before the throne of grace as a community. And they lay down their needs, they open up their hearts, they share their sorrows, they ask for things, they, they praise God, they come before God's throne asking for help, and God loves it. God wants that. He's not annoyed by it. He's not tired by it. He is not weakened by it. There's not a tank of grace that depletes when we ask him for something, but it's overflowing. And oftentimes, we're the ones that are slow to ask him for help. God is not slow. We're the ones with little faith. Right? Read the Gospels. That's over and over again. Oh, you have little faith. Oh, you have little faith. And this peace that we have is knowing God is with us. God is for us. And it's not this fuzzy feeling or this sort of you know, meditative like, peace, nothing bothers me, right? Because we're about to learn about how suffering works in the Christian life. But it's not this you know, mystical kind of peace. It's an objective reality. It's a, it's a confidence. Knowing that God is with us, that, he belong, that we belong to him, that he wants to be our God and for us to be his people. What is on your heart? What are you suffering in right now? What burdens do you have that you need to lay down? Well, what is the promise of God? Come to my throne of grace. Come to my throne of grace, because you have peace. Not just judgment removed, but fellowship opened up to you every day of your life. God's peace can give us joy in the midst of suffering. Second thing, God's power. God's power gives us joy in the midst of suffering. Again, you might say, okay, God helps me. That's great. Great word. Uh, why is life still so hard? Right? I prayed. I prayed today, prayed the whole week, and life is still incredibly difficult. I don't feel relief. I memorize, don't be anxious about anything, and it just makes me more anxious. All these things happen in my life. Where's God's help? Well, we have to think about this in light of Christ. Did God help Christ? Yeah. Yeah, Christ prayed constantly. He knew everything the Father was doing. But did Christ suffer? Yes, he did. Was it painful? It was. So the perfect Son of God receiving perfect help from the Father still suffers. 
Hebrews 5.8, right? Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. Jesus never sinned, but he still suffered. Why? God was growing him up. God was maturing him. Sinlessness doesn't mean that, you know, Jesus knew trigonometry at age two, right? Jesus grew in wisdom and stature in the Lord. He, he grew under the, the guidance of his parents. He grew going to temple. He grew up reading the scriptures and learning the scriptures, learning from rabbis. But he did it sinlessly. And God's curriculum for Jesus was this, death and resurrection. Humiliation, then exaltation. That's the pattern. Jesus suffers in this life, being hated by men, suffering, facing all the temptations that we face, enduring them perfectly. And God resurrects him, glorifies him above all names. And he says that to us, right? God is against the proud, but he lifts up the humble. There's a great parable in the Gospel of Luke where you know, Jesus talks about, you know, imagine you're at a wedding feast and you've got a really important guy at the front table, right? You should not sit right next to him, but rather sit at the end of the table in humility because a guy might go, hey, you at the end, why don't you come up? And he says, that's a picture of how God works. We don't exalt ourselves. We humble ourselves. And what does God do? He lifts us up. He brings us to the table and promotes us upward. That's the pattern that Jesus faced. And if, if God wants us to be like Jesus, he's also going to grow us up like he grew up Jesus. That's what it means to follow in his footsteps. So when we face trials of various kinds, what does God tell us to do? Rejoice in our sufferings because this is how God works. This is the process. How does God's power work in your life? Do you just sort of zone out, your eyes roll back your head, and you're just like, I'm filled with power? No, you don't just cruise through life. Jesus didn't just cruise through life. The power of God is manifested as we face trials and we let them have their full effect. We let them form us in our character and we obey God in the middle of it. That's God's curriculum. We suffer, here's the process, we suffer, we endure. We grow in character and that character leads to hope. Another way of thinking about endurance is the word steadfastness. You can translate it steadfastness. And that really brings out the idea of, of endurance is not just bearing it and grinning it. They're bearing and grinning it, right? It's not just sitting there and going, you know, oh, this terrible stuff is happening. I'm just going to put on a, a happy face. No, it, I think steadfastness brings out more of that idea of, of when I suffer, I'm going to put it to use. I'm going to continue to remain faithful to Christ despite what's coming against me. I'm going to maintain my integrity. I'm going to maintain my integrity regardless of what the economy is, of what people think of me, regardless of what the cost is. I will maintain my faithfulness to Christ under pressure. A steadfast person, you know, it's, it's like, it, and, and it's actually the pressure that, that, that forms the character within us. Right? Diamonds are formed by constant pressure, and Christian character is formed in the same way. So we have to practice endurance. This is a skill that we learn as the trials come into our lives. God's power is manifested as we go, Lord, even though this is happening, I will continue to obey you. 
and you will find that God's power will be manifested in your weakness, in your need for him. You will find that you can still obey, not perfectly, but persistently, that you will continue on in that. So you don't suffer Tuesday, right, and endure until, you know, Thursday afternoon, and then maybe Saturday by mid-morning you'll have character. We're talking in terms of years, probably decades. This is, Eugene Peterson has a great line. He says, the Christian life is, is a long obedience in the same direction. We're talking, this is going to take a long time. But keep going. Right? I remember, you know, and, and I love this connection between character and hope. You know, as you grow in character, you become a person of hope. The things of God, if you're growing in Christ-likeness, then the things that Christ hoped in and loved will become the things that you love. And the vision of God's kingdom will become more beautiful to you as you conform your life to who God is. On our Tuesday night, we have this, you know, Tuesday night, we call it the fellowship of the wing, because we get wings and we talk about Proverbs. And uh, we were reading this one proverb that says, Proverbs 10, 24, and it says, what the wicked dreads will come upon him, but the desire of the righteous will be granted. The desire of the righteous will be granted. And we were sitting there puzzled by this verse. We're just like, that sounds a little, you know, prosperity gospel-like, you know? What's going on here? If you're righteous, you'll get everything you want. But as with all, you know, the Proverbs, you got to sit and sit, you got to sit with it a little bit. You got to sit and think. What do righteous people want? They want to see sin eradicated. They want to see love. They want to see justice. They want to see righteousness. They want the needy and the poor and the forgotten taken care of. They want to worship God. Those are the desires of the righteous. And which one of those will God not fulfill? Has he not promised to fulfill every single one of those? It, It will not happen in this life but it's still coming. And the question is, do you want those things that God promises to give? Maybe the hope of the coming kingdom, the hope of Christ's second coming, isn't real to us because our character hasn't been formed in such a way that we love those things, that we love righteousness and grace and forgiveness. Do we want the things of glory? And as we endure trials and grow in our character, our taste buds for the things of God come to life. And the hope that he gives us becomes more and more precious. Ask some of the older saints in our congregation. Ask them about their hope, and they'll tell you about it. Because they've endured much, and their character has been molded in such a way that maybe the things they read in their 20s that they passed on, in their 60s and 70s they read, and they're just so precious because their character has been molded to love the things that God promises. C.S. Lewis once said, the truth, of course, is that, one, is that what one calls the interruptions are precisely one's real life, the life God is sending one day by day. In other words, we go through our lives and we're like, man, all these interruptions, screaming kids, tough work, all this stuff is happening, all the politics, everything getting in my way. I can't wait to just get to my spiritual life. And it's like, you know what? That is your spiritual life. All the trials sent to you. They're not interruptions. That is your life. This idealistic spiritual life doesn't exist, right? It's on the ground. 
But the life God is sending you day by day includes all the interruptions, includes all of the trials. And those are opportunities for you to see God's power working in you as you endure them and let them grow your character over seasons of your life. Are you taking advantage of those opportunities? Character takes practice. I remember growing up, I, you know, I, I, I played the piano, and I remember I had to just like do scales over and over again. Or if I wanted to memorize a song, I had to play it over and over again. And I realized what I was doing, even though it was difficult, was building muscle memory into my fingers so that when I would have to perform a song, I wouldn't think. It was ingrained in me. It was like the music became a part of me. And that's how character grows. It becomes a part of us. The words of God become a part of us. And we have muscle memory. And when we need it, when the time calls, we're able to act in a righteous way because it's been ingrained into us. But it only happens when we receive these interruptions in our life with joy. We entrust them to God and we endure and let them have their effect. And when we encourage each other to do that, all of us in this room are at various points in this thing. We're either suffering or maybe we're in the enduring part or maybe we're, in the, we're seeing some character grow. We need to help each other, encourage each other, keep going. You haven't been doing it perfect. Okay, hey, get, get back up. We're with you. We're praying for you. Are you suffering? Help us. Help us help you endure. Help us help you have hope. This is not individualistic. How does Four Oaks Midtown need to grow? What do we need to endure as a community? What hope do we need to grasp onto? This is how we learn hope. Finally, the third pillar of hope is God's presence. The knowledge of God's presence, the fact of God's presence, helps us rejoice in our sufferings. Like I said in the very beginning, hope, Christian hope, does not put us to shame. It doesn't let us down. Hope is not a thing that just floats in the sky somewhere. Hope is a person. Right? Our hope is in the triune God himself. I love what Paul says. Why can we have this hope? How can we endure? Because God's love has been poured into our hearts by the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. The Holy Spirit is not an impersonal force. It's not like God's vibes that he sends. It's not his thoughts and prayers to us. The Holy Spirit is God himself who comes to dwell in us. His powerful, personal presence dwells in us, individually and as a church. So to have the Spirit is to have none other than the God of the universe with you, to be your comforter and your helper. And he has been given to us. God has gifted himself to us. Pay attention to the verb, too. God pours his love into us. Right? The spirit is often described as living water in the Old and New Testament. He's just taking this cup and pouring his love into us, and we're empty vessels. And he fills us up with his care, his compassion, his fatherly attention to us. We learn in the book of Ephesians, the Spirit is God's down payment. It's the first installment of all that we inherit in God's kingdom. In other words, if you have the Spirit, if God is willing to give himself to you now, 
how will he not give himself to you for all of eternity? He could never turn his back on you because he would be turning his back on himself. You have the Spirit dwelling in you. It's a seal. It's a firm, secure sign that you belong to God because God dwells in you. How could he ever cast you out? How will he not finish the work that he has started in you if he dwells in you? And now there's a debate over this verse on whether it's primarily talking about God's love pouring into us or or our love pouring back to God. And really, I, I think it's both. As God pours his love into us, we respond by pouring our love back out to him. As he fills us up, that is what fuels our worship. So we don't worship so that God will be impressed and then pour his love into us. No, he pours his love into us, and the outflow of that is our worship and gratitude to God for being so overflowing with his love, radical with his love, overpowering with his love. And his love is his personal presence. Every act of worship, every moment of obedience, every trial we endure is by the power of the personal spirit of God. God is with us. And God's always desired this. If you read the storyline of the Old Testament, it's God desiring to be with his people. He walks with Adam in the garden. He leads Israel as a pillar of fire and a glory cloud. And then he tells Moses, I want you to build a little tent. And me, the God of the universe, who created this universe that is 93 billion light years across, of all the stars and galaxies, I want you to build this little shoddy tent, and that's where I'm going to be. I could be anywhere else in the universe. I want to be here with you. I want to dwell with you in the temple. And then I want to dwell with you in human skin. I will dwell among you. And today, how does he dwell among us? By the Spirit. As the word is preached, as we sing, as we pray, as we take the Lord's Supper, God dwells with us. You may not always feel loved by God. Our feelings, they fluctuate. It's like the weather. They fluctuate. But it's an objective truth. Something we can keep returning to. We are loved by God. We're not justified by our feelings, but our faith. Against what we feel, we know God's word is more true than what we think our reality is right now. And God's presence means that he walks with us. If his spirit is with us, God is walking with us. Think about Psalm 23, Right? It doesn't say that God will lead us around the valley of the shadow of death, but what? Through it. And he will lead us gently with his rod and his staff. When Israel cried out when they were being oppressed by the Egyptians, it says that in Exodus 2.25, God saw the people of Israel and God knew. He knew. He knew their pain. He knew their suffering. He cared. And it brought him up to act. God knows. He's with you. He doesn't count your sufferings as cheap, as a blip on his radar. He knows. I remember hearing this pastor talk about um, whenever he would face, whenever something overwhelming would happen, or there would be trials, or he was suffering, he would look out his window and he would say, Lord, you know. You know. You know what I'm going through. You know how I feel. You know how weak I am. And you know what I need. Lord, you know. 
right? His wife actually played a joke on him. He was in his 50s. They were expecting their fourth child. And she told him one day, by the way, they're twins. And he said he looked out his window and he said, Lord, you know. <laughs> Very cruel joke. But he, uh, he, the, the point being, you know, do we recognize that? God, God with us, God dwelling with us, God knowing what we need, how we feel about things, our constitution, what we are like. God knows. And he cares for us. Do you believe that? God is here right now. God is with us now. We're not sitting here remembering God back in the day when he did stuff. But God is with us now. His word is being spoken, addressing you today in the moment. I remember hearing a, there's this priest, he was this Anglican priest, he was talking about why you know, why do we bow in church? Why do we do all these things? You know, people are like, oh, this is kind of weird. He's like, well, we believe that God's here. If Jesus Christ showed up, what would you do? I, I think about that. Jesus Christ is here by his spirit. How would that inform how we sing? How we treat one another? How we live? How we prioritize Sunday? Think about this. If, you know, if you have a non-Christian friend or a friend who's like, man, I need to get back into church, maybe you tell them, you know, we've got great worship, you know, we've got friendly people, everything's great, preaching is adequate enough to accept, you know, we've got all these great ministries. What if you told them, why don't you come to our church? Uh, God meets us there. That's where God dwells. Anytime believers are gathered throughout Tallahassee, God dwells with them. Do you want to meet God? Do you want to know where God is? He's with his people. He's with you now. Consider that as we take the Lord's Supper. Consider that as we pray. Consider that even now, God is with us. So our hope is anchored by these three gospel truths. Peace with God. We've been reconciled into a relationship with him. The power of God that works as we endure through our sufferings and it creates character and, and that character makes us people of hope. And in the presence of God, God is with us. Through the valley, through the darkness, in our trials, as a community, he's with us. And I want you to consider this as we close. We're about to enter into the Advent season. In Advent, it's a word that means coming. It's the coming of the King coming of Jesus. And we often celebrate Advent, and rightfully so, thinking about the coming of Christ to Israel, all the people in the Old Testament who waited for Christ, and he shows up in a manger. He shows up as baby Jesus. The king has come, right? But that's not the only coming we celebrate as Christians. We also await his second Advent, his second coming, when he will complete the work that he has promised to do. Because the world is not yet as what God promises it, that it will be, right? We all feel that. We're not yet what God promises we will one day be. And so we too can share in that waiting, in hope, that Jesus Christ will return. Think about all the things we've faced this past year and a half. Difficult trials. What is our hope? 
that the Lord Jesus Christ will return. He'll make all things new. He'll wipe away every tear. And that is such a hope that we can rejoice in the now because this hope will not put us to shame. Our hope is not in ourselves. It is in the unchanging, good, and gracious character of God. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Lord, you know. You know. Let's pray. Our Father, we pray that you would seal this into our hearts, that we would grow in hope through all the trials that we face in life, through all the things that we don't understand, the anxieties about the future, the fears that we carry with us. We, we, we don't need sentimentality. Lord, we need your powerful, personal presence. That's what we need. Open our eyes to it. Help us as we meditate on your word, as we sing your word, as we pray your word, as we think about what you have revealed to us, that you would begin to grow us in hope. That you would make us people who are proven in our character and joyful in our suffering. And God, help us by your spirit to love one another and to encourage each other as we see our brothers and sisters suffer as we see them endure. Help us to spur them on to love and good deeds. Help us to comfort them. Help us to be your hands and feet to minister to them. Build up this church in love. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.